Welcome to Magic and Mayhem. Discover the secrets to creating magnificent books for kids and teens. Magic and Mayhem is a free podcast and ebook series brought to you by the Australian Writer Centre. If you're interested in writing for kids and teens, join us on a journey that's set to inspire and enhance your own writing skills. Download your free Magic and Mayhem ebook at magicandmayhem.com.au. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm founder of the Australian Writers' Centre and I'm so thrilled to bring you this curated series of interviews. You'll hear from picture book authors, chapter book authors, middle grade authors, young adult authors and also from publishers in the children's writing industry. So you'll get a wonderful overview on how to write books for kids and teens. This episode is an absolute treat. You'll be hearing from Hazel Edwards, who is the author of the classic kids series, There's a Hippopotamus on Our Roof Eating Cake. As well as picture books, Hazel has written more than 200 books for kids, teenagers and adults, and she doesn't show any signs of stopping yet. As you'll hear, Hazel talks to Alison Tate from the Australian Writers' Centre. Hazel works with a lot of people, either as collaborators or co-authors. As she tells Alison, it can be wonderful to work with other people because they think differently. Writing doesn't have to be about locking yourself away and spending lonely hours by yourself. You do need to get out there and learn from other people. And if there's one thing that Hazel has done, it is to continue to learn and grow. She's been writing for more than 40 years, so you can guess that she's no spring chicken, but is still as fresh and forward-thinking as ever. And above all, Hazel is generous about sharing her knowledge and nurturing other writers. Enjoy. Best known for the children's literature classic, there's a hippopotamus on our roof eating cake series. Hazel Edwards writes for children, teenagers and adults. She has had more than 200 books published and has recently written a memoir of her life and work called Not Just a Piece of Cake, Being an Author. Other recent releases include F2M, The Boy Within, co-authored with Ryan Kennedy, and Trail Magic, Going Walkabout for 2,184 Miles on the Appalachian Trail, co-authored with her son, Trevelyan Quest Edwards. Coming out this week is Hijabi Girl, co-authored with Esge Alkin. So welcome to the program, Hazel, that you have the most amazing um, CV, I think, of any author I've spoken to so far. Um, but let's start at right back at the beginning when you were work- you worked as a high school teacher before publishing your first novel, General Store. What brought you to write the novel and how did it come to be published? Well, uh, I, I was told, <laughs> as most aspiring writers are told, to write about what you know, first of all, because then it sounds authentic. Well, I'd grown up as a teenager in a general store in Gippsland, and so what I did <clears throat> excuse me, was I used the setting of the general store. It's not really autobiographical. The central character isn't me, but I thought that would be my practice novel using a familiar setting and otherwise I would have changed the name of the story because I think general story is a a particularly boring title and uh, a lot of people have assumed that general meant a rank and store was the surname Um, and so uh, at that stage I wasn't as aware of the importance of titles Uh, I'm very much aware of that now but at that stage I wrote it as a first uh, young adult novel, my first one, expecting to have to write three. Uh, And then it was unexpectedly 
accepted on a first uh, reading by Hodder and Stoughton. So what I'd done was I'd compiled a list of 10 of the top uh, publishers and I thought, well, I'll work my way through them and while I'm doing that, I'll get on with the second and the third novel and then maybe I'll crack it by the third. But the reason I was writing then, which was a, I was about 26, was I was about to have my first child and I had a couple of months um, where I could control the time in my life a little better. Uh, I, the baby hadn't arrived yet. Uh, and I thought, well, in the first year uh, of... Uh, and I wasn't a full-time mum because I was working as well, but I would I would experiment because I wouldn't ever have this sort of time flexibility again. So that's why I started then. So in, in a way, it was the birth of a baby and the birth of a book together. Fantastic. <laughs> and had you actually been... Because um, I, I saw on your website, which is a fantastic resource for... Well, that's artists. due to the what was baby, now my uh, daughter in her oh. 40s, who's my marketing manager. We're very much a family, uh, as I was asked the other day, is writing your family trade. Well, in a way, I've co-written with my son with the challenging name and uh, also uh, he hated that name when he was a kid. He loves it now as a writer. But uh, Trevelyan Quest Edwards is a bit of a mouthful. But uh, my daughter has helped me very much because in her real job, she's a, a marketing manager and I'm just format challenged. I don't think in pictures and shapes, which is partly why I have a lot of different types of collaborations because I work with people in different fields and it's wonderful to work with someone else who imagines with different skills from your own. I think in abstract, and that's why I can work with, say, a picture book illustrator or a puppeteer or uh, a co-writer in crime because they think differently. And putting together two different types of thinkers means that the eventual book works much better. That's really interesting. And I do want to speak to you more about co-authoring down the track because I think it's something that... Um, people might think about, but they're not entirely sure what the, um, you know, the practicalities and pitfalls of that mm. might be. But um, just going back to that, like I saw on your website that you uh, you had been writing, you know, you wrote your first novel in sixth grade. You were one of those authors yes, who sort of started right. very young, et cetera. <laughs> Readaholic. Um, did you, um, had you written all the time before that, so you, you attempted that first novel or was it just a case of, I've got the time, I'm going to have this baby, it's now or never, I'm going to see if I can get this baby. No, no, I'd always known that I wanted to be an author, but I didn't actually know any authors. When I was growing up, authors didn't visit schools in the way in which I tend to do or others do these days. Uh, so I, uh, although I came from a household that read very widely, I'd never met an author, but I knew that's what I wanted to be. And my father suggested I get a real job first. And yes, that's right. Uh, so that's why I was a, uh, I was actually a primary teacher first of all, and primary teaching and writing are actually very similar in that they're to do with ideas and personalities. And what partly attracted me to being a long-term author was 
the variety of acquiring different sorts of skills but being able to continue to learn in different fields and that's what I have done and that's partly one of the reasons I mentioned to you before about the collaboration. One of the ways you can continue to learn is when you work with an expert from some other field and you learn in the process of doing that book. Okay. So speaking of collaborations, the classic picture book, There's a Hippopotamus on Our Roof Eating Cake, which I bought for my nephew, who's two, for Christmas, was your third published work. Now, it's slightly different to writing a a YA. How did you come to a picture book? And, you know, did you ever imagine it would prove as lastingly popular as it has? (laughs) Well, the hippopotamus on the roof eating cake, which is actually 36 years old, written 38 years before, but published 36 years ago, um, came about as a result of something going wrong, and that is our roof leak. We still live in the same house, and I get people who knock at the front door saying, is there a hippopotamus on this roof? (laughs) And I say, have a look. You can't say yes, and you can't say no. So, uh, I mean, there was a genuine problem with the roof, and it dripped and my then four-year-old son, that was Trevelyan with the challenging name, whom we actually call Velian at home, uh, he said, oh, that's the hippo up there that eats cake that was making the noise on the roof. And it was a family story in the way in which many families have stories about imaginary friends yes. for that four-year-old age group. And what was different in our case was that I captured it in words and the children were involved in writing it too. But we wrote it originally just as a family activity. But at that stage, I'd already been published by Hodder. Uh, General Store had been published and a second book had been accepted for junior readers. And so I showed it to them and they took it immediately. And that was why it doesn't always work that way. (laughs) I wish it always did, but this was one of those things. And they matched me with Deborah Nyland because Deborah Nyland was in their stable of illustrators. And what they did at that stage was that traditional publishers would link a known with an unknown. Yes. So a known illustrator, in this case Deborah Nyland, with an unknown writer who was me. Um, and, and that is probably quite a successful combination of putting the known with the unknown in lots of different fields. And because originally we wanted to use the children's own illustrations, but that wasn't viable. So that was how that came about. And now the hippo, uh, I think I knew it was a special story, but I never expected it to travel as far as it has. It's gone into Chinese translation. This year it's touring as a musical, Hippo Hippo. Um, it's gone into Auslan signing and into Braille. And um, it really has been... Um, and it's been extremely comforting to some children who are sick or incapacitated in some way. And I mentioned some of those and some of the fan mail in the memoir because some of those stories are extremely poignant. Mm. And that's where I really think the value of a book like There's a Hippopotamus on the Roof Eating Cake, which I don't actually consider as mine anymore. I think a book actually belongs to the reader's imagination once it's published. So 
many claim ownership of that book in the sense that it's been their favourite childhood book. And that is a wonderful thing, but it, it goes on in its own right. It's not really uh, my book, you understand what I mean? I do, and I, I completely mm. understand. But it's interesting, isn't it, because it's, what, 400 and something, 400-odd words? Yes, that's right, uh, which also points up one of the reasons why I use that title on the memoir, not just a piece of cake, because often people consider that writing for children is easier and they tend to think that less is of less, con fewer words is of less consequence. I have written in lots of different fields and I have to share with you that getting picture book text right and getting the subtext, the things going on underneath, choreographed well is technically more challenging than writing a 100,000 word uh, adult book. <laughs> and I think it's a bit unfortunate at times that people assume that a writer's IQ is commensurate with their age of their readers um, because it is actually more challenging to do that. And that's one of the things I've tried to share, the, the candid uh, feelings about the areas of writing, um, particularly in relation to writing for children. So writing for children is not just a piece of cake and I don't say defensively, oh, I write for adults too, because it sounds like a put-down, and that's not so. Every form of writing has its own challenges, but for me, writing for children is like the Rolls-Royce in the sense of the books that you write and you read when you're very young have a much longer impact, so um, and you feel more affectionately about them, and people are more inclined to keep them. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm reaching the stage where the third generation wow. <laughs> is saying to me, oh, that's my favourite book. I have a, a, a couple of grandsons, and now their contemporaries um, see it as their favourite book. It's amazing. I just I love the longevity of it. I just think it's an incredible thing that to have created a a story that is so immediate for across so many generations. I think it's an extraordinary achievement. So well, well done. I think it's it, it, and the reason for it, and you can't you can't um, give a recipe for that no. sort of thing. I, I I've been asked a number of times why I think it's it survived. Well, I think one reason is that it's a universal situation. It appeals to people, well, for children, but also because adults share those sorts of uh, books. It can be read, um, it has a rhythm to it. Um, I, I choose the words very, very carefully for a picture storybook. It has a rhythm to it, but it's really a universal situation and it's the reassurance of a large uh, friend who's got all the answers. And let's mm. face it, as an adult, we'd like one of those too. Yes, I'd, <laughs> I'd like one of those. Well, you're clearly an author with a lot of ideas. I mean, you, you've had, you know, 200 books published. That's a lot yes, of ideas. Yes, that's right. How do you decide which idea to write next? Well, I've been a commercial writer in the sense that I have made a living from writing for the la I'm 70 now and I was published first in my late 20s. Mm, so I've wow. been consistently published in various fields and various ways. 
but having an educational background has given another dimension for me. So that's meant that often I've been able to write something about the how-to aspect as well. So um, one niche area in which I've been involved, although I'm not a genealogist, is writing a non-boring family history. And I've run workshops on that. And that book is very, very popular because a lot of people are interested in the how-to aspect. So often I've written a story in more than one format. Um, so it might have been a play script or a film script as well or a classroom performance as well as being a story. Or it's a how-to book that has... Uh, advice in it for other people so and often those books were commissioned so the authorpreneurship book that the Australian Society of Authors published which is probably one of the most useful for your audience mm, is about the concept of the ways in which being published has changed um, very much now and that a creator also needs to be an authorpreneur in the sense that they have to look at the market possibilities of that idea and how they might craft it in a way that it is appropriate for a particular audience. And I think that's the big difference for a long-term author, uh, to be conscious of your reader and to craft your material. I think there are a couple of stages. At first, you write uh, because you want to write and something grabs your attention. As you become a bit more experienced, you look at the best way in which that format could be explored. Uh, our most recent example is the Hijabi Girl, which is coming out um, uh, next week. And originally, I'm, I'm co-writing that with a, a Muslim librarian, Erske, Um And originally, we had conceived of that as a picture book because then it would be possible um, for it to be read by perhaps older readers too, although the character is about eight, a very feisty young girl who's a sort of new Pippi Longstocking. She just happens to be in a hijab yep. and she solves all problems. But originally we conceived it as a picture book because we thought it could be used by many for whom English was a second language as well. Right. But that, because of the political implications at the moment of the word hijab, we had a lot of difficulties with that. And a, a chapter book, which is what it is now, a junior chapter book, was easier to get out than a picture book, which right. is um, much more demanding in terms of um, illustrations and so on. We've been very lucky in that Serena Geddes has done the artwork for this one, and it works. Right. But the... the um, Pitching an idea for a particular audience. So, for example, um, the other controversial or potentially controversial book is F to M, which I think you mentioned in yes, your introduction, yes. uh, which F to M, The Boy Within, which is um, a young adult novel on a character who transitions gender. Well, my co-writer, we knew there would be um, mixed reactions to a subject like that, but it's a coming-of-age novel. My co-writer has been in that situation and is a family friend between the ages of my adult children and grew up with them. Um, so with that one, the reason that we decided to make it fiction and young adult fiction and for the character to be around the 17-year-old age group, but the readership 
to be 13 upwards was that photo ID is incredibly important when you're transitioning gender and that affects all your documentation everywhere. So someone who is about to go for a driving licence, which is the 17-year-old age group and the friendships issues. So we, we concentrated that, but this book has been used by many families with gender uh, diverse combinations or fluid gender is a term I've learned recently too. So it's being used by a readership who aren't necessarily 13 to 17 because a novel, uh, a, a work of fiction is a way of distancing a little from your situation and looking uh, from the point of view of living as that character for the length of that book and maybe beyond and a little more tolerance. Mm. Now, we don't write propaganda. We write stories. There's mm. a big difference. Yeah. Do you work on multiple projects at once or are you strictly I, yeah. like one at a time? I usually, I used to have about five running concurrently, but the last year or so I concentrated mainly on writing the memoir, not just a piece of cake. And there were health reasons for that because I'd had a bit of a heart scare and I couldn't fly for a year. So uh, I was a bit worried about my literary clutter right. okay. <laughs> and what I might leave for my daughter to sort out. So right. I thought that I would work my way through slowly because I was always being asked for autobiographical content, which I had avoided until then. Yes. Um, but I thought what I'll do is I'll declutter my literary life and, and look, because people often ask about the techniques you use as a long-term author. Yes. Being a long-term author who's also had a family is a very different situation from a lot of the autobiographical accounts that you read of earlier writers mm. who were often single, who were often from wealthy families, who often didn't have other bills to pay, yes. <laughs> or who had servants. Uh, yes. I often think Virginia Woolf's situation where she describes needing a room of your own in 500 a year is fantastic, but she happened to be married to the publisher. <laughs> And she didn't cook. She was part of the Bloomsbury group. But her quote is very relevant to everybody um, who is aspiring to So I'm often asked about those things and I, I thought, okay, what I'll do this time is I'll write something which I may not publish and I will experiment with the eye of being completely candid about the challenges and I'll try to answer the questions that people ask me. So there's one chapter in there I think that your people might find particularly interesting. It's called The Plateau of Boredom <laughs> and why you write and how you work your way through this plateau of boredom. But I also put in completely different chapters like some of the fan mail is really poignant, some of it's really funny. So I thought, I'll do it in a completely unconventional way. I'll write about the things that I've been most asked about, even though they're very diverse. So there's one chapter there. What I've done is it's, I suppose, it's literary speed dating. I've um, <laughs> used the questions that are most often asked of my characters, such as the hippo, yeah. but I've answered them. So I'm on both sides. Oh, both sides of the... Well, I, find, I found it um, a really interesting read, the memoir, because it's like 
it's like the way it's it's a it's a very conversational book yes. and it's like fragments it's like we're yes. having one long conversation but we're kind of coming back to it and we're dipping in and yeah. out of it and it's it's um it is a, it is a lovely read and i i recommend it to anyone who's looking for a long term career as an author yes, the reality realistic. of it is right yeah. there in front of you um do you have a strict writing routine do you write every day oh yes i'm very self disciplined mm. and i think that's the the other um, idea I'd like to get across in the memoir, there are a lot of people who talk about being a writer, mm. but you actually have to do it. Mm. And one of the things I found most interesting as I was decluttering um, and looking back over projects that had been initiated and perhaps had died or you know moved sideways and so on, in the past when I've been asked, about what was the success rate on the projects that you did. I have always said that a freelancer probably gets about 1 in 10 up, you know, about 10%, mm. even if you pitch a project before you start it and, and you're pretty organised and you look at the market and something you're passionately involved in and so on. I'd always said, oh, it's about 1 in 10. Mm. The reality when I went back and looked at almost... 50 years of writing was it's about one in 40 which is even less but what happened was and I think this happens for many long-term writers and it may be of a little comfort is that something that hasn't worked you you put on the back burner for a while and it might be that it didn't work because the timing was wrong Mm. um it could have been um, a a very good example was our f2m book which came out five six years ago and it was the first book of its type on that subject and um but now there's a lot of material around on that that sub with that subject matter but we we just happened to be ahead of it um but it might be the wrong timing, it might be the wrong format, it might be the wrong length, you might have, they might have had something like that recently. There might be a whole lot of factors that are nothing to do with the quality of what you've written. On the other hand, it might be that it just wasn't good enough. Mm. It wasn't thought through sufficiently and that you might have to go back and do it again. And, and So what I found was when I looked at these, it might have been a 1 in 40 success rate, but a lot of the other 39 were fed in to other experiences later um, and helped shape later projects. An example would be something like film or animation. The first time you're offered a film option or an animation option, you race out for the champagne and you celebrate. Um, But the reality is a lot of those really, really big projects where you're talking millions of dollars don't happen. They never get up. I know. Um, A lot of them don't. Um, But you know next time of some of the things that you need to to safeguard on that increase the chances of of something Mm. really working well. Mm. So um, I do talk in there about those sorts of realities and I do talk about the the importance, if you're a long-term writer, of not 
writing the novel about the novelist who's writing a novel about the novelist who's writing a novel who's got a writer's block. I don't believe in writer's block. I do talk about the need for participant observation, that is going and doing new things in order that you can write realistically about it afterwards. And my Antarctic expeditions and Nepal and so on, a lot of people don't know about all of that stuff. I'm known as the hippo writer. Um, yeah, the hippo lady, which when you're my size and weight is, <laughs> is a mixed blessing. But um, the, the importance of continuing to grow in terms of ideas and experiences and not being totally introspective. And so that's another reason why for a long-term writer, um, collaborations are important because you're forced to learn new things in new areas. So I've collaborated with psychologists like Dr. Helen McGraw on the book Difficult Personalities. Mm -hmm. We freaked out when we lost the chapter on anxieties in cyberspace, <laughs> but apart from that, it's gone into Russian and Polish and Korean. I don't know that indicate an American. Uh, I don't know whether that indicates where difficult people are, but um, it, it's travelled much, much further than our friend's book. I've collaborated with my son on his two adventure memoirs, one of which is cycling solo from Ireland to Istanbul and the other one is the trail magic one of the Appalachian Trail you mentioned. Now he did the physical stuff of that. I didn't actually walk the Appalachian Trail but he did yeah. and he finished it which is more than Bill Bryson did in his film. But uh, continuing to be open to other possibilities so when you ask me about what, how many projects you do a year I try to have at least one which is a new area for me so I'm learning new skills and new worlds and write about it. In the past I investigated Pokies gambling because I was interested in the maths of that. In the last year or so I found out quite a lot in connection with Hijabi Girl about Islamic religion and I so Learning new, both geographic experiences, but also mental challenges as well. And one of the reasons for writing mysteries, both for adults and for children, is it enables you to use a variety of settings, but with the same characters. And it enables you to continue to grow too. So just to go back slightly, when you do co-author with somebody, um, yes. what do you think is the what, what do you think is the biggest single challenge of writing a book with somebody else? Well, the first thing is you need a letter of agreement, <laughs> even if it's your son. <laughs> um, uh, the Australian Society of Authors, and I'd strongly advise people to look at the Australian Society of Authors resources there, um, have, have a contract for co-authors. But to decide between you who is going to be doing what and who will defer to whom on uh, different aspects. So my relationships with different collaborators has varied in that it depends what they're bringing to the project and it depends what I'm bringing. Often I'm bringing the writing expertise and perhaps the business expertise or the entrepreneurial aspect. Uh, they may be bringing specialised knowledge. So, for example, in Hijabi Girl, uh, Earthgate checked all the cultural aspects and we had to make sure that our central character of Melek, her sleeves were long enough 
and right. uh, to be modest and um, the food was right yes. for halal and things like that um, but we actually co-wrote it together when I worked with Ryan Kennedy on the F2M book that was one of the most interesting collaborations for me because he was in a different country he was in New Zealand so we actually collaborated on Skype which sounds a bit wow. weird but it wasn't just talking to each other we actually typed stuff as well because we found that we could save the plotting queries if we typed them as you went <laughs> as we went and he uh, what I found interesting he, he's Australian but his, his New Zealand accent became more pronounced as the year progressed we wrote a detailed synopsis to start with we pitched the concept and got a contract from the publisher before we started serious writing we developed our central characters we we really plotted it very very carefully that one but what would tend to happen is that ryan would write the uh something each week which would come across to me on a sunday night and i'd work on it too we discuss the next uh, stage and so on but in his case he had experiences experience that he could bring to that subject that would have taken me five years of research to find out. Um, so I always deferred to him on all gender matters and yep. anything to do with the process and he deferred to me on the structuring of the story and the sort of business side of it as well. And I think that was actually a really good collaboration but he was also extremely high tech and I'm I'm a learning, uh, learn a new digital skill every day type person. Mm. And I have to tell you, the fact that he had naming rights on our character, whom we called Sky, who became Finn. Mm. And Sky and Skype are pretty close when you're typing. <laughs> it was a bit of a nightmare for me. Um, but his high-tech skills meant that that was the first trailer we had for a oh, book. Right, yeah. Um, we did a web chat launch between link up between a New Zealand bookshop and here. They left me talking to myself on the on the wall while they uh, went off and had a drink. Um, <laughs> and we have a YouTube clip that Kailash Studios did of an interview uh, of the two of us and why we wrote that book and the sorts of questions that people asked us and why, how we handled things like the. Um, English teacher who threw the book in front of me in the bin oh, in front of her students nice. at a literary conference and said, don't read rubbish like that, which guaranteed they all read it immediately. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that sort of where you have uh, perhaps uh, a controversial subject, but we haven't written about it in a controversial way, but where people condemn something unread, it, mm. it is a real worry. And one of the reasons that I continue to take on some subjects that others might can... Our Hijabi Girl book is a fun book. She's, mm. you know, she's a terrific character. She just happens to be in a hijab. Mm. Um, and that means that some people will have a reaction to that book 
and even the title of our book is deliberate. We played around with a lot of titles before we wrote that one. But we hope that she will eventually be a series because she's got some pretty fantastic mates, <laughs> including including Zach, who's a soccer fan, who's got a reading rat called Rattus Rattus. Other people have a reading dog. He's got a reading rat reading in the classroom. He's got, um, we've got two or three other characters in there. So, you know, we just hope that people will look at the universality of characters and see things from somebody else's point of view for a while. Excellent. All right. Well, just to wrap up for our today, we always like to ask our author, uh, our writers in residence, uh, for their three top tips for new writers. So given your experience, mm. Hazel, I'm expecting big things here. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Well, no pressure. Okay. Well, they sound fairly simple, but they're actually really important. The first one is to consider your reader. Who is your potential reader or audience and craft your story for them? So the first thing is audience or yes. readership. Yep, okay. Um, the second one is uh, to rewrite. <laughs> Don't assume that the first version is good enough. Yep. Um, I would say on average I rewrite at least 10 times, sometimes 30 times, depends how controversial it is, but expect to have to write it many times to get it right and don't judge it by the length nor the length of the words. (laughs) So first one is audience. Second one is expecting to rewrite. The third one is choose a subject that you actually care about Mm. Um, if you don't it's going to show through I do not believe hack writers can survive Mm. I do not believe that writing what everybody else wants or everybody else is doing because you want to make a million is going to work it just doesn't work Mm. so you need a unique voice on something that really matters to you. Um, so the third one, if we say audience first or readership, secondly, rewrite. But the third one is, is the choice. And I put along with that that the title really, really matters. The title should be the first clue to what is inside and that's why not just a piece of cake being an author was about the 10th title (laughs) in fact more than 10 i think it was really really difficult coming up because it seems like such a given do you know what i mean like in the sense Mm. of like when i look at it now i think yeah of course what else could it be called well for example on the cover now being an author is in larger font Mm. than just a piece of cake not Mm. just a piece of cake but for me it was not just a piece of cake was the major title and being an author was the second bit but from the publisher's point of view being an author and being is a continuing state (laughs) was more important so i think in that last bit of subject but that the title should be a hint of content, but also in the style of what's inside. So not just a piece of cake, it's actually, I mean, there are funny stories in there of the joys of travelling in the outback as an author and things that happen and so on. Um, But it's 
all so um, poignant, you know, and it's genuine, that one. It really is a candid account. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Hazel. It's been an absolute pleasure. I could probably have, as I think I sent out a tweet just before we spoke saying that the biggest difficulty of this conversation would be not turning it into a two-hour podcast special. <laughs> um, so I appreciate your um, candid answers and I, I do recommend the memoir for people who are wanting to be a long-term author. It's a, it's a great read and it's a great insight from someone who has done it and is still doing it. So mm. um, thank you again for your time and um, good luck with all your I think for your aspiring writers, the page on my website with the links for aspiring writers is yes. probably the most useful yes. resource. And that's for at hazeledwards.com. That's right. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Hazel. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I'm Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, and I'm the internationally published best-selling author of two epic adventure series, The Mapmaker Chronicles and The Adaban Cipher. My books are available in Australia, the US, the UK and other territories and are perfect for young readers aged 9 or older. Find out more about me and my books at alisontait.com. That's A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T dot com. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens, our five-week online course, How to Write for Children and Young Adults, will help you get there faster. Find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love, all in a couple of hours a week. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning from anywhere and get your very own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. Hazel has so many great quotes, but I think this one is my favourite. She says, There are a lot of people who talk about being a writer, but you actually have to do it. Yes, exactly. She mentioned that her success ratio is something like 1 in 40. For every 40 projects she starts or thinks about or postpones or whatever, only one will eventuate into a completed and published book. That can be hard for new writers to hear, but it just goes to show you have to keep writing and writing and writing. Oh, and rewriting. Hazel says she rewrites at least 10 times, sometimes as many as 30 times. So if you think first draft done, job done, send it off, well, maybe put it away for a few months, come back to it later, and then begin that process of rewriting. Because that can be where the magic can really happen. If you want to connect with me personally, then feel free to do that on Instagram or Facebook. I'm Valerie Koo on Instagram, that's K-H-O-O. But most of my posts on Insta are about my art or head on over and connect with either myself or Alison Tate in our regular podcast group on Facebook. There's also a bunch of awesome authors in there. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. It's free. See you in the group.